Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Nathan Royal. Nathan is a sound designer, re-recording mixer, and founder of the company This Is Sound Design. In this episode, we talk about Nathan's climb in the industry, why he decided to start a sound design company that focuses on working with more creative, independent projects as opposed to giant Hollywood blockbusters, and the identity crisis that sound for film is currently going through, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Nathan Royal. So one question I had for you to start is your early days of theater and your early days of theater sound design and experimentation and learning in those earlier days. So before you got into film and linear media and all that, can you talk to me about what your sound design process, thoughts, what it was like way back then when you were first getting your feet wet? I came to everything kind of arts and creative through theater. I grew up on a working farm in rural Illinois, and actually I was in scouting, and I got interested. I was a camp counselor in scouting, and we did campfires and skits, and there was a performative aspect to working at a scout camp. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This feels good. And incidentally, a couple of my friends in scout camp were also big film buffs and really into movies and talking about movies and going to see movies. And for me, having been a kid that kind of grew up out on the farm and, you know, I like movies and stuff, but I was a little bit more of a rural kind of out running around kind of kid. It kind of piqued my interest, both performing and theater. And a lot of the kids in Scouts were theater kids. They're both kind of these niche, specific, kind of tight-knit groups and a little bit outsider, too. So when I was like middle school age, I was doing scouts. And then when I got into high school, I was like, oh, they do plays. I'll try out for a play. And I had a kind of knack for it. So I started acting in plays. And at the same time, I was meeting kids that were in the arts part of my high school and met some kids who were in a band. And they're like, hey, we need a singer. And we know you sing in musical theater and you sing in show tune stuff. And a lot of that was because I grew up in the Baptist church and I sang. I'm not a religious person anymore, but in growing up, I went to a little a small rural church and we sang old school Baptist, like traditional hymns. And I loved it. I loved singing. So I got into a band, got into a rock band. And so I was working in theater and acting and doing that piece. But then I was also in bands and recording bands. And actually my best friend at the time, Nick, uh, his parents, this is 1996, they bought him the Roland Digital Porta Studio, which was one of the early digital audio devices you could got to get your hands on. I think it was pretty expensive at the time, actually. He was an only child, so his parents, <laughs> my parents weren't buying me a Roland Porta Studio. But so we started recording ourselves and we got started already getting into kind of producing music and recording our garage band. So those were these two kind of parallel things that were already happening when I was like, in my teens. And so then I went on to study theater and really was thinking more about acting and writing. 
but I was also still recording music and still in bands and still playing in the garage with my pals and writing songs. And at some point, I went through all of college kind of doing both these things, but separately. And at some point, I had a professor, Bill Grivna, who actually just passed away. He was a really important person to me. And he said, hey, you do this band stuff and this music stuff. Why don't you try to do some of that with your theater work? Because we actually had an experimental theater class where we would develop and devise work. And so... I started to do that. So I started to, in that time, it was SoundForge. So I went into SoundForge and I built some like trippy, weird, layered, reverb soundscape and then did a performance to that, kind of an experimental, weird, climbing a rope to the ceiling, what I thought was really out there stuff. And I just immediately clicked from it. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And then I went on from there and I did actually, with my buddy Nick, we wrote a score for a, a play called Marisol. So even then we were starting to compose and we wrote a, a, like a 12 song score for this theater play at Southern, Southern Illinois University. It was just pretty unusual, the, that kind of thing. And, and so sort of out of that, I just started to get opportunities in St. Louis in the region, in like regional theater and middle there, there was a couple local kind of upstart black box theater groups and most of the time, they didn't really have a sound designer. And this is even before really computers were very common. So this was like burning to CDRs was how you do a sound design. And it's like maybe we would put like some cool songs or some maybe some ambient songs. And then, oh, maybe a few like ambient tracks, like a, a forest sound or some wind. But it would be what you would have is like a DJ CDR double DJ deck and you'd have to crossfade between it was all done totally manual but it was cool and I'm then out of that I got a bigger gig at a regional theater in St. Louis called the St. Louis Black Rep and that was a full-time gig basically being a sound designer and building sets so I did both and so honestly that's basically where I started as a professional so that was my first professional gig I was probably like 21 22 years old and so I was already a professional sound designer. It was my job. I think equally important was my building sets. And interestingly, because I grew up on the farm, I grew up around construction. My dad actually, after we quit farming, which was pretty common in that era in the 90s for family farms to close up shop, my dad then went into kind of construction. So I had spent a lot of time on construction sites. So I knew how to swing a hammer. I knew how to build things. And so that was great. So I was doing that in the theater world. And so that was kind of where it all started. And then I was doing that for about five years. And I was doing, I don't know, a dozen plays a year, both these smaller plays and Shakespeare and lots of different things. So I was kind of becoming like the go-to sound designer outside of the big regional theater, like everything else I was doing at that time. So that's kind of what led me to it. And so interestingly, when I was at the Black Rep, they used to get a magazine for us and I think it's called entertainment design now. And so it was just this big, big, like large format magazine that would talk about different theater shows and different things that were going on. And one day that came and I opened it up and I saw this story about this production of King Lear that was done at Cal Arts here in LA. And it was the wildest, trippiest, coolest theater production I had ever, I couldn't even imagine it was done at the brewery here in LA. 
part of the show, they put the entire audience in a camera obscura and moved it around on air casters. There was a live car crash in the middle of, of the show. And to this day, it's one of the cruelest and very expensive experimental theater productions that's been mounted. And I was like, what is this place? This is incredible. I have to know more about this. And honestly, it really planted the seed of, I got to get out of St. Louis. I got to go to a place that's doing things like this. Because I, again, I was saying my mentor, Bill, back in school, he had been in experimental theater in LA and, the, and a little bit of movies too in the 70s. And he was that kind of a guy. He had piqued my interest into this kind of more creative, less traditional theater work. Then I saw this, I was like, oh man. But at the same time, I had gotten really interested in technology. I would gotten really interested in kind of the internet and all these things. So I was like, I'm either going to go to CalArts and I'm going to study this cool theater stuff. Then I could do film because I knew it was like, oh, that's where Pixar guys went. It's a great film school. So maybe I can go there, take my theater credentials and sneak my way into this film school. And then the other option was like, or I'll go to ITP, the Interactive Telecommunications Program in New York, and I'll just completely abandon this and do technology. And I went, I interviewed at both schools, and I actually was accepted at both. So I had to choose. And at ITP, they love theater people. They love people who have that kind of like technology, but real world experience. And it was a really tough choice. And at this time, I was probably, I guess I must have been in my mid-20s. I'd worked for five years. And ultimately, the thing that that took it over the edge for me at go to CalArts. There was two things. One was in my interview. I interviewed with actually a lighting design professor named Lat, who who's done Broadway and done a lot of stuff. And he, and I, he said, oh, you know, he wanted to kind of know what my deal was. And I told him I was interested in, te in technology, but I'm also interested in theater and I'm interested in getting into movies. You know, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do. And he said, listen, he's like, I was in New York for like 15 years. New York's great. But he said, the thing about New York is it's a stockbroker city. It's hard to make work there. The architecture set, you basically have to work within the system. He said, if you go to LA, man, it is the Wild West out there. He's like, you can do anything you want. You can build anything you want. There's space. I, it's, it'd be a no-brainer. And as a kid, I grew up out in the country in rural Illinois and on a farm. And my dad had a machine shop. I was just used to that kind of thing. And so for me, it was like, boom, oh, that's it. And then I found out that CalArts was a three-year program and ITP was a two-year program. And I'm like, I'm in my mid-20s. This is my last chance to do not just grind. I'm going to take that three years. So that was ultimately what decided it. But even at CalArts, I went into the sound design program there, and that's still within the theater school. CalArts is a really incredible place. I feel so privileged to have both gone to school there and to graduate school and to have worked there because Walt Disney founded that place. And the whole idea was that at that time, there weren't really integrated art schools, right? It was like there were music conservatories, there were theater conservatories, there were art schools. He was like, we're going to take all these things, put them together into one building and all the artists in the same space talking to each other and working together, it's going to be an important thing. And he was right. Now it's obviously this collaborative model is everything. And I am a big advocate for the Disney biography, the, the main one, because what you realize is, oh, wow, he like invented the way we do this, you know? And it's like, and CalArts was an extension of that. So, and CalArts was an extension of that. I came in as sort of a mid-20s, like how I was married. I had already worked as a professional artist. 
So for me, I came in and I was like, number one, I know that the kind of foundational mandate of this place is they have to let me try things and do things. It's that's the whole point. They're supposed to be able to explore and expand. And, and so the first thing I did that day is I went, they have a class sign up where you can basically have every professor in the institutes in the one big main lobby. I went right to the film sound people and I said, hey, I've worked in regional theater for five years. I'm in the sound design program. I'm excited about sound design. I'm excited about theater, but I want to learn how to do sound for you. And so that was then started this new parallel track, which was now I'm really intensely learning how to do sound for movies and, and really grabbed a hold of some mentors in the film program at Cal Arts. Meanwhile, I was still doing awesome experimental theater at Cal Arts, which culminated in working with my friend Lars. And we did a production where we put an audience of a hundred in headphones and built a spatial mixing console using the uh, reactable XYZ tracking thing with the time was kind of the hot thing. And so you could spatialize the audio into the space and the audience could experience very much working in the game and wrote all that in Maximus P like doing that stuff in the theater program. But all the while I'm like, but when I get out of this place, I'm going to make sound for movies. Cause I, I had enough sense that was a place that was probably more income potential. I, by that time, had really fallen in love with movies and had really um, gotten very interested in, in both the technical part of it, which I think sound for movies, there's just nothing more technical. And if you get into that, it's as deep as you want to go. Here I am 15 years later, setting up this Atmos dub stage with four workstations. And it is still like deep as you want to go. But on the other hand, all that work in theater, it really gave me a very strong sense of kind of real time and what it means to like work with an audience and understand how sounds work with an audience to understand how to collaborate in this more real time way. And even at CalArts to get into like developing original work and touring original work, which we did after grad school. So those experiences were invaluable because one of the things about the film industry is it tends to be a little repetitive and a little, oh, we can do the sound like this in this movie and that's from that movie. And so instead of really thinking originally and thinking about in an organic way that you're forced to do in working in something like experimental theater or in devised work, you can kind of easily fall into a rut. And so I feel like all of that experience really informs how I think about how I work, how I, how I work as a mixer, how I mix a movie in real time sitting in a mix stage. All those experiences in theater were really, really mm, That's amazing. And I'm sure when you were at CalArts diving into the film world, you start to find out and probably found this out sooner that there's a million kind of audio roles on film projects. You know, there's editors, mixers, re-recording mixers, sound designers, and the word sound designer has such a loose definition in film and all that. Did you get a chance to read the article I wrote about that for Movie Maker? I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about your take on it nowadays, because before, you know, in the, in the olden times, it was so divided. Like, okay, you are doing this. You are a Foley artist. You do nothing else. That is the end. But now sound design can mean you're going to feel record today, tomorrow you're going to edit, the day after you're going to mix it. How does that all merge together? And how do you think people should kind of think about it nowadays when it comes to learning those skills? 
one of the things I'm really working towards defining, I think, as a person in the industry right now, not only I, but several of us are really thinking a lot about this. And as you learn more about the history and the industry, sound has really been in this transition. And in a lot of ways, it's one of the kind of last vestiges of the old analog era, which by necessity, the process took an army of people because it was all kinds of analog audio coming off tapes that were cut with razor blades and then landing on a console with no automation that you had to have just a huge group of people to accomplish something like a big feature film mix. And that made a lot of sense at that time. And I think it, it created certain roles and certain even ways of thinking about the work and certain ways of organizing the work that have for a variety of economic reasons and practical reasons and political reasons have stuck around, even though they actually were getting to the point where they're holding us back, I think, actually, as creative sound artists. Because the level of specialization required back then isn't really required now. And it's a different set of specializations. And, and really, it's a kind of like, ultra generalist that you need to be is that you actually need to be not only know every role fully and effects editing and dialogue and mixing, but you actually need to be an IT professional. You need to be basically a master level technologist. You need to understand sound synthesis. You need to be a musician. All these things that were just little tiny parts of the process that one person maybe could dedicate their whole life's work to are now, on some of them, at least to have a, an active understanding of what it is. I think the, the networking element is huge. And I even, going and working in big mix stages with people who are maybe the last generation, it's tricky because they don't understand how Dante actually works. They don't really understand some of these kind of essential things to really, in my opinion, when you get them, it really opens up all kinds of potentials. And that's not even starting to talk about building stages and designing BSS systems and all these other things that I think are as much a part of my work and thinking as a sound designer as like being in Pro Tools. So I think that's where we're at. And I think we're also, not to be too political, but I think the other element that's at play is that all of the major studios still own big sound facilities and there's a lot of money in renting sound stages. And that's why I put everything I have on the line to build a facility with sound stages because until you can access that stream of money that's coming into a project, they're a little bit hamstrung because you can be a really great sound designer or mixer, but if you're completely dependent on somebody else's facility and that's the facilities to create the work are 75% of the budget of a movie, that gets very tricky and it can lead to a lot of difficult things because then managers and accountants are actually the ones in charge of the sound design process, not the sound design. I, in some level, intuited some of this early on. And the way that I did it is that early on when I was starting in the industry, I had someone tell me like, there's not sound designers because I had studied sound design at CalArts and I had really embraced this idea of sound design. And what that is, it's a design process and it's about collaboration and it's about ideas at the root. 
And then what are the ideas? What are the concepts? What are the things we're trying to do experientially? And then let's think about the technical execution, right? And what I found pretty quickly, and then this isn't in all cases, and, and let me just say in all these things I'm saying, there are some genius, creative masters that do sound for movies and they're 10 times as, as great or as invested in some of this creative side of things as I am. But I think in general that basically there aren't sound designers. That's a theater thing. There aren't sound designers in film. There's editors and mixers and you need to choose a track. And so you can go be a mix tech and you can kind of learn how the consoles work and then eventually you'll get to mix or you can go be a sound editor, a junior sound editor, and then eventually you'll get to supervise sound editors. And to me, ultimately, I was already building these collaborations with these directors at CalArts. I'd been very lucky that very early on, I had some movies that landed at Sundance. I was meeting more people. So I was organically just starting to build a network of directors and relationships. And so for me, I said, I don't think of it this way. I, I think it's sound design first. And then that's the process elements that ultimately lead to creating the sound design. But furthermore, I'm as much of a sound designer when I'm mixing as when I'm editing. And I understood being in Pro Tools and already having been at CalArts and in stages and mixing movies. I was like, that division isn't even really real for me as a person who creates sound. So ultimately, I got a sense of kind of what the vibe was. What it was to like work in the uh, kind of traditional model in the industry and try to choose a, a track and all that. And I just said, you know what? I'm just going to try to go it alone. I'm going to try to like just organically build up and word of mouth and built my own first little studio behind my house. And so that kind of set me off. And so in a way, what I've been trying to do is an embodiment of what I was saying, which is that I'm trying to be this kind of example of what a sound designer is you know and that's why my company is this is sound design it's meant to be everything we're doing here it's a statement that says if you're telling me that there aren't sound designers in movies let me show you what that is and it definitely involves mixing <laughs> it definitely involves foley and it definitely involves all these things but the spirit of what we're doing and the sort of even the way we talk about the work and think about the work and the relationships we're building with the people we're working with, the directors and producers and composers, all of that is in the spirit of sound design and that process. And on some level, it's semantic. And oftentimes I equate it to the production designer, right? So the production designer on a movie, that's a department head that's in charge of ultimately what does the movie look like? And that involves painting and it involves sets and it involves scouting locations and it involves curtains and props and all these things that there's a bunch of people collaborating with the production designer to realize the look of the movie. But the production designer is designing the way the movie looks. And to me, the sound designer is designing the sound of the movie. And it's what does the movie sound like both conceptually and practically. And that to me is the equivalent. And again, just to be a little subtly political, because this is a business conversation, one of the things I do with my contract is I have in there, I say in credits, I say, I want to be credited with equal billing to the production designer and the costume designer as sound design. So equal, whatever that billing is, I want the same billing. And most of the directors and producers that collaborate are thrilled to have that because they understand what we're doing and they understand what 
how that is in the spirit of what I'm doing in the project. But interestingly, the few times that I've had pushback on that is when it is a movie that is with one of the big studios that own their own sound departments. And they are very adamant. That is not a credit that they will allow. And I think that there's a business and financial interest in that happening because if we start to be thought of as independent artists and people who are like, Nathan is a sound designer. He works in this way. There's a handful that we know of, Ben Bird, Walter Murch, Barry Widestrom. There's a handful of people. Interestingly, most of them are up in SF where they got out of LA. They're like, we're going to do it differently. These are the people who got out of the system. And I think that on some level, I think that there's a little bit of holding on by the people who are like, we want to keep making the money when making, renting these rooms. And it's important to make the room rental the thing that's the thing that we're selling and not the sound designer, because then if the sound designer becomes somebody that they want to work with, then they're going to have a lot more power, just like the cinematographers, just like the composers and who have now have agents and are represented and they're in that conversation. And I think it's long overdue that we as sound designers enter that conversation, but we're going to have to push a little harder. I think we're going to have to get our union to finally acknowledge that this is an issue and that our credits are an issue. And I think, you know, Wiley's statement has been talking about this, he, you know, uh, the semantic conversation, which is like, he's in the camp that says, let's do sound director. I think the director's bill will never let that happen. But I think to me, it's like, who are our peers in heads of the rest of the process? And that's the costume designer. That's the production designer. And we understand the way they're credited and thought of. And so I'm very hopeful that we're going to break through. And I mean, I, I did the, the movie The Voyeurs for Amazon, and Amazon was more than happy to allow me to have this sound. So I think it's another kind of vestige of the old school, old Hollywood studio system. And we're just we're almost there. So it's both the kind of old analog way of thinking, and it's also the old kind of business way of thinking. I mean, I love that you're waving the flag for sound design, not just by making good sound effects, but also, you know, credits and having people know who you are and what you do. I think that's extremely, extremely helpful to the industry as a whole. And your niche in the industry is like so interesting to me because a lot of sound designers listen to this podcast and they think I have to work on Star Wars or nothing. Like that's the only work that's out there. But can you talk to that? Because you're obviously doing great. You just have this beautiful studio that you've built over a number of years. There's so much work out there. That doesn't mean that you have to work on Star Wars or nothing. And can you talk to that kind of point of how much stuff there really is out there and how many opportunity there is? You know, my trajectory in terms of that building the kind of the clientele and building up my credits, it was like it's a slow and steady process. And it's always been about evolving my studio and my facilities along and trying to kind of grow with my clients. And, you know, virtually everything I've ever done is word of mouth. It's just, I work with someone and film festivals as well and meeting people at festivals. And, you know, over time, I've ultimately developed a good reputation as someone who both is a creative person and a great collaborator, but also has the sort of infrastructure to support which is equally important. 
So I think that's an important part of it. And also I have a style of sound design that I think is somewhat distinct. And I actually have had a friend of mine, he's a curator for a few small film festivals. So he watches a lot of short films. And he said on multiple occasions, I've watched a short film and I knew that you did the sound design. And that's exciting. And that's what I've been trying to do. And, it, you know, it's a certain sensibility. It's very personal. It's part of the way you feel about the work. And part of it is technique. And part of it is experience. And it's always evolving. But that's been a big element, too. And so there's all these mainstream things happening. But there's a whole world of more introspective, more sensitive, more esoteric in some cases, types of, of film that I think really suit my style of sound design. And so it's a natural fit for a lot of projects. And I think as certainly over the first like decade of, of working in film, I was doing a lot of small indies. I was really kind of in that South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, you know, that circuit of first and second feature directors. And we all know that for the most part, the kinds of stories and the kinds of sensibilities that are coming out of that. And at the same time, the film industry, certainly we have more and more tentpole stuff, but it's all in a way, there's both more and less, right? There's both more big movies, but ultimately a lot of it is the same people doing the same types of movies over and over. And I think on some level, I just sort of recognized early on, well, Unless I decide right now to give up having my own studio and doing it my way, I'm not going to be working on those movies. And of course, everybody wants to work on Star Wars. So I totally get that. But I think, you know, in a way, it also kind of, I was saying earlier about how the kind of repetition of design and how, oh, it sounds like this. So let's make the sound for this, like that thing. And, you know, I, I think about like how so many monsters sound like the Predator, right? And so many robots sound like an Autobot. Like, that there's this sort of tendency when you get into the, that big scale, big tent movie making, there's a lot of repetition, whereas like, I've done some indie creature movies and we can do it however we want, right? Because there isn't that sort of pressure to actually conform to an expectation in a way. Now, I'm starting to move into doing bigger movies. I just did a movie that is it's close to $40 million. And so I'm also now working on projects where we're dealing with, you know, we worked on that movie for nine months. So I am now starting to get to experience working on these bigger scale projects. But even the projects that we're doing, they're not transformers. They're still coming out of a sensibility and a way of thinking about sound that I developed in those indie movies. So that's exciting. And I think, you know, in terms of like speaking to the audience and saying like, okay, well, how do, how do I go about doing this? One of the things I understood early on is that everybody is going to have different strengths and everybody's going to have different ways of approaching it. And in fact, early in my career, I was sort of like frustrated because I saw the way in my feeling, like sound was kind of diminished in a certain way as in terms of like, you know, it goes along with this idea of not thinking about sound designer. And, you know, it's like, oh, you're, a, you're an engineer and you're this type of engineer, that kind of engineer. That really frustrated me. And I, I felt like it diminished the work we do in a way. But ultimately, I think what I've learned over the last like more than a decade is that 
no, a lot of people wouldn't be able to do it the way that I do it or approach it the way that I do it because maybe they're not as technically savvy or maybe they didn't have the opportunity to be at CalArts and to learn what creative discourse feels like. And sometimes those things are, for what I'm doing, it's very useful. But I also think that there's so many other paths and so many other ways to come about doing this. I'm not like a great musician. I don't play instruments very well. I think there's a lot of people in our field that are incredible musicians and that informs the work they do. You know, so when I was doing theater and kooky art projects at CalArts, they were like learning to be a great guitar player. And there's a lot of value in that in, in the work we do. So ultimately, I think in terms of advice, it's like you have to figure out what kind of activates you and also what brings out your creative spirit. And that's the, the direction that you can go. And for me, it's, it's both this kind of collaborative conversation and developing the ideas and realizing them, but it's also like getting deep into the technical side of it, right? And like getting really into making our own BSS systems and programming our own interfaces and even like building a, a mix facility and doing the architecture work on that and figuring out the Dante system and like getting deep into that as a creative exercise. And a lot of people aren't going to have access to that because it's just not the way their mind works. And they might in the end, like do way more interesting things because they're not thinking so much about their Dante network and thinking more about more creative stuff. So I think there's no right or wrong, you know, and I think that's something that I've gotten a little more zen about and that like, even in terms of like, well, what should the industry be? How should the industry work? What the industry is going to be is going to be based on all of us really tapping in to what gets us going creatively. And that's going to tell us how to be great sound designers. And that's what's going to change what the industry thinks sound designers are. You know, it's not going to be some like, decree like we're not going to say supervising sound editor anymore it'll always be supervising sound editor probably i think it, it's really just about leaning into that creative spirit and finding your way of kind of doing it whether you're working up yourself up through the ranks at skywalker or you're like literally rolling your own giant facility with multiple stages all these things have incredible potential and sometimes i'm a little jealous I know that if I had just said, you know what, I see the way things work. I'm going to like put my nose down and be a junior editor. I could be working on Star Wars right now. And so I made these decisions and I, I don't have any regrets whatsoever. But, you know, I, I think if you go into it clear eyed and you're sort of following who you are and the way that you can kind of realize your sensibility, your creativity, your sort of energy then you're going to find your own unique way to be the sound designer in whatever part of the business it is. And I think that's what we need more of is less like, oh, there's a path, this path, that path. I'm choosing this track or that track. I think that's the thing that's not the thing anymore. Because the, look at the tools, look at the technology. It's so mutable. It's so uh, adaptable. Like these are like the most adaptable technological architectures that ever existed like there's so many different ways to approach making a monster voice now it's like you don't have to have a kima to do that you can find your own way and there's like it, it, in that it's so dynamic it's like a whole bunch of different paints that you can paint with however you want and so that's my advice is just find out who you are figure out what gets you going 
if something doesn't feel right or doesn't mesh with you, just try something else, especially when you're in your 20s and you, know, you don't have kids yet, and, you know, because something's going to hit you and it's going to activate you and you're going to know it and it's going to feel right and you're going to get right. This is it. And everything that I've done in terms of the studio and my, my creative side as a designer, it's all just been finding those places and building on them and pivoting based on those kind of instincts. That's ultimately how I did it. And that's it. Mm, and how do you demonstrate all that in kind of like a business capacity? Because, you know, everything you just said is so beautiful, but a director might not know what Kima is. <laughs> you can't tell them like, oh, I'm really good at this. Hire me. So like, how do you kind of differentiate yourself in that way and make it come across like, here's my sensibilities, here's my background, like, here's why this is sound design or whatever business you're running is the choice for your film or anything like that. Like, how do you communicate that to clients so they trust you? Sure. Yeah, it depends on the client. And that's even more so now, because sometimes I have a lot of different types of filmmakers that are coming to me, right? And sometimes it's like a very young filmmaker, maybe it's their first feature, and it's about me being like, hey, I understand what your movie's about. I understand what you're trying to do here. You know, a movie like we just had this movie Joyland that went to Cannes and Toronto. And now it's the Pakistani submission for the Academy Awards this year. And we're very hopeful it gets shortlisted or maybe even gets nominated for Best Foreign Feature. And, you know, that's a first time director, but it's his first feature. But he has a sensibility and... He has a very unique, very verite, very spirited and intuitive movie, actually. And in that case, that's about immediately I was able to get in touch with what that is. And it's very similar to like a movie I did 15 years ago. It felt like it has a certain feeling to it. And there's something in that case, I'm almost known for that. Like so many people have come to me because like you did it felt like, well, I love the sound in that movie. I want my movie to sound and that's a very much a kind of tapping into what drives young filmmakers to make a movie and understanding how to kind of interpret that feeling and those energies into an actual movie. And they're all different because often I think it's very easy to get very much in your ego and I've done a hundred movies and blah, blah, blah. There's so much subtlety in each movie and so much about what the filmmaker is bringing to it and being open to that and being humble in a way. Even a director who's 22 years old and making his first movie can teach me something about movies and teach me something about what it feels like to have this experience or that experience. Certainly a director who's talking about a Pakistani experience, right? But I think anybody's sort of perspective can be exciting if you're humble enough to take it in and let it teach you. And so that's a big part of what I do with a lot of the first and second feature directors. And I, I think some of these directors I'll have in 20 years, I'll probably have done 10 movies because we're creating a kind of creative bond. And it's a lot about me being open and empathic to what they're trying to do. And at the same time, using my experience and using my infrastructure to be able to also realize something that's incredible and, and oftentimes well beyond what they could get maybe they went to a bigger studio or a different person who had a different kind of way of thinking or a more technical or a more kind of oh this is how it's done so that's one whole group of directors i'm working with and in many ways that's why i built this studio 
I believe in that. I believe in that collaboration more than anything else because it's what I experienced at CalArts. It's what I experienced working in theater. It's what I experienced in undergrad as an actor. Getting in touch with that collaborative energy is so powerful. And I think in many ways, it's what's missing in a lot of the films that, that we're given. So in a way, like, I'm certainly a businessman and an entrepreneur, and I'm building something that can make a great life for my family and ultimately be sustainable is what I'm moving towards. But the sort of cool thing is I can also, a movie like Joyland can come in and make and say, oh, we only have this much money. And I'm like, great, we're going to make this incredible, even with that amount of money. And that's, I love that. And that's ultimately, if there's one reason I did this, it's to be able to do that. So that's one area. Now, you know, some of the other other stuff is like, sometimes I have directors that are coming to me and it's a variation on this, which is the one of the bigger movies I recently did. That director had worked at one of the biggest studios in town for one of his movies. He essentially, it had several pretty negative experiences with a mid-budget movie in a facility that really is used to doing $100 million. And so... His experience was they don't care about this. They think I'm full of shit because I haven't done all these big movies and that essentially I'm just supposed to sit down and shut up and let them do what they do. And frankly, I think that in this case, this director, he's brilliant and he's an incredible vision for the sound in his movie. And he wants to collaborate and he wants to get in there and try things and experiment. And that's is a new part of what I'm now is these kind of mid-career, mid-budget filmmakers who are saying, I've had a bad experience at one of the name brand places. I hear that you have the infrastructure to do a big movie. And we, I could mix a Marvel movie in this one. It's a theatrical Atmos with four machines and a dubber and the whole thing and the S6 console. But I'm still approaching every movie more like what I was talking about, the small movie. And so taking that spirit and that energy and then the rest of it is just about time and the number of people we can get working on it at the same time. And certainly there's infrastructural and management stuff you have to figure out. And a team of 20 is different than a team of four on a project. And I get that. But ultimately, that's in a way, it's just a variation on the same thing, which is that there's a way to approach doing sound in a movie it's very organic. It's very true to what the movie is telling you it needs. And, and those, those aspects of it are just as important on a movie that has tens of millions of dollars to spend. And so that's what I'm still presenting, but at the same time saying, and we've got this great room and we've got a, this beautiful 4K projector that can do Atmos playback and multiple stages and all of the sort of infrastructural things that are critical to be able to do something at that scale and to be able to do eight weeks of Foley and have the ADR facilities and all that to make it so that there's not like some kind of compromise to come and work with me. And still, even now, I think where we're headed is we're, we're now starting to knock at the door of some bigger stuff. And so also understanding what we can and can't do. And one of the big things with this last project we worked on is that through the post-soup, I started a relationship with John and Nancy Ross. John Ross worked with David O. Russell and worked with, worked with David Lynch. He did Lost Highway, you know, in many ways. 
John's kind of the next generation for me, but he is always a little bit of an outsider like I am. I know for a fact that John was the guy that embraced working in the box when everybody else was still working in the new concerts. And everyone else said, oh, yeah, that's never going to work. It's always going to be these great big monsters. And obviously he was right. It's obvious, you know, and John was the first person who used servers for sound and all these things. And so this recent movie we just did. So I have this theatrical Atmos stage here. And then we've got it set up so that we can just straight up take a pre-dub or a mix that's here, take it up to one of the biggest stages in town in their big Atmos stage and get a one-to-one translation. And so that's the idea is that even if we're working on a great big movie, we can still put most of the creativity and the time in here and the pre-dubs so that we don't have to go sit on a big stage for six or eight weeks or more. We can go up to a big stage for two weeks and end up with a movie that sounds like it was there for two months. And that's a that's a big sell. Because I can say to that director and producer, like, hey, we're going to be able to spend more time mixing the movie because we're going to not be in the big stage spending all that money for the whole mix. So that's a big selling point. And so there's all this whole range to be able to kind of like pitch. And yet at the same time, in the end, I'm always pitching the same thing which is it's about creating an opportunity for the movie to speak to us and having the time and the infrastructure that we don't feel like we're just trying to get it done, but we actually have the breathing room to be able to kind of, you know, experiment and play with it and let it evolve and let it breathe. And that's on a bigger budget movie. That's also something that having this facility is opening us up. It's all a kind of variation on the same theme in a way, but at the same time, different productions have different concerns. And I, and I understand, you know? And so it's like one of the things that's tricky is like, and this is even literal, is to like have stages that are small enough that we don't feel like we've spent so much money and we have so much overhead that we like basically can only do certain things because we're going to run out of money. And at the same time, have infrastructure and facilities that are big enough that we can be like, yeah, we can take anything and work with you on it. And yeah, we've got a way to actually get it to the big stage in the same way, but actually we'll spend half as much money. Man, I wish I could talk to you for like 10 more hours because there's so much good stuff in here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a question I ask everyone as we start to, you know, wrap wrap up is when you first started in this field, and that could be anything, that could be in the world of theater, that could be when you were a kid, how did you define success in your career and how has that changed over time and how do you define it now? That's a great question. I grew up on a working farm, working with my dad and, you know, in like in the truest sense of like a, a farmer is a jack of all trades. A farmer is an engineer and a horticulturist and a mechanic and a veterinarian and, you know, on and on and on. You really, you have to wear all those hats. Right. And at the same time, you have to be very connected to the animals and the weather and all these things. It's, a, it's this symbiotic environment where you're sort of always kind of like learning and growing and find, you know, it's, it's a very different environment than a lot of other people experience growing up and, and, or even as adults where they're like, <laughs> and it's got analogs to what we're talking about in the sound business. Right. I do this one thing and that's what I do. Farming is not like that. So I grew up around that. 
And so for me, I think that there's something that I sort of absorbed about that experience, which was like, I want this independence. I want a situation in which I can be in a constant state of growth and that I can kind of constantly shape and evolve and build and change. And I have the space to do that in its mind. And I think that I really absorbed that growing up. And then my dad is a really interesting guy. He was a farmer, but he also invented a bunch of stuff and has a bunch of patents like on farm equipment. So he had this working machine shop and welders and all this stuff. And one thing he always told me, he'd have me in there cutting parts on a big bandsaw or doing something. And he'd always tell me, like, so the secret is you have to be both the machinist and the tool and die guy and the engineer. Like, you need to both be able to conceptualize it and understand the way that it works mechanically. And you also need to be able to understand what it means to make a part. And you can really do that. And I think that very much was infused to me early on. And so I think that for me, what success has always meant is having my own thing. You know what I mean? Having my own space that I could be able to kind of sort of realize and however I wanted to realize it. And so anytime I got into a situation where I wasn't moving in that direction, I immediately intuited that it wasn't right for me. So intellectually, I mean, you know, I think that there's an element of like, yeah, I, I thought it would be incredible to be a famous musician or uh, work in movies and do things that people knew about and saw. And so I think I always had that a little bit of that feeling. Once I kind of discovered theater and movies and stuff, I always had that feeling. But I think in my soul, what I was trying to do was kind of remake the farm. You know what I mean? Which is hard. There aren't a lot of family farms anymore. They're mostly factory farms, you know? In the end, I'm just a modern farmer. And I think that is true. It's like probably the closest version of that that I could get to that embodied all of those kind of experiences. What ultimately I deeply need to have the experience that I wanted to have. So I think Really, that's the success, and that's where my most satisfying feelings come from. I'm loving working and the collaboration and all of that is so fulfilling and building these relationships. And and I think that's probably the other element beyond just this is mine and I can evolve the workflow and I can evolve the process and what it means to be sound design and bring in interns who then begin to work for me and grow and, and, you know, finding kindred spirits and finding young people who are like, oh, I see you're totally have the same spirit. I know that you're going to be a great sound designer. That's been a big element of it too. But then, you know, of course, the other piece is just, you know, the movies that I loved growing up were like, you know, I, I'm in my early 40s. I kind of came up in that like indie film, you know, renaissance, uh, you know, Aronofsky and P.T. Anderson and all these guys like came through Sundance and went on making the most incredible creative movies. And I kind of saw that they, you know, they had built these relationships with their, their teams and they worked together year after year after year. And I think that's the other thing that to me is like what I'm working towards and I haven't totally achieved it yet. My dream ultimately is I want to have five or 10 incredible directors 
and we're we're making every few years we're just making another thing it's just a pure expression of our collective idea of what a great movie is with the sensibility of the director and the writer and that we can evolve that for the rest of our careers and i think that's the next goal that i'm already i'm already getting there that's the other piece because now i have i've got my farm here but i'm I'm really looking forward to growing with some of my collaborators and it's happening. And I have a few I've already done many things with, I, and not just directors. I have an editor, uh, close pal and brother, Brian Schofield. We've done like 10 movies together now. He's actually off shooting his first feature. And we're going to work on that. And so to evolve our relationship creatively over 10 movies, it's so and it's so exciting it's just that it's like being in a band with someone for a decade or you know these things where you're like the depth of the collaboration and the way that our collaboration influences our work and the other and our choices and how we even think about doing the work you know it's it's incredible and i'm uh i'm so excited about that and i'm actually excited about the industry embracing that because i think the industry is about to kind of break loose a little bit i think we've, we're kind of repeating ourselves to the point where it's like okay yeah these movies are not working anymore you might have to like let the next generation might have to give them a little more money might have to actually let them kind of do their thing and i'm i'm pretty excited how that's gonna be part of this these collaborations that's a beautiful beautiful note to end things off on so as a last question where can people find you where can people find your studio how can they get in touch Anything you want to plug? My my studio, This Is Sound Design, is here in Burbank, our new facility, version three here in, in Burbank. And we've got a web URL, T-I-S-T-V. Uh, so there's stuff there. You can see the movies we've worked on and everything. So yeah, definitely that. I mean, we've got lots of movies upcoming. We just had a movie come out called I Love My Dad that won South by Southwest. It's a great movie and it's out everywhere. It's a really crazy off the wall dad. Pat Oswald, Oswald catfishes his own son. Great movie if you want to you want something to laugh at. We have Joyland that's gonna be hopefully shortlisted for the Academy Award, and that's gonna be appearing pretty soon here for streaming, which is this beautiful Baratelli movie shot in Pakistan. The Voyeurs, I know you had you had Rishi and uh, on who did Song Exploder. And he, he was talking about Michael Mohan. Michael Mohan did the director, that they were close friends. Uh, so I did, I did that movie last year with Michael. That's out on Amazon, and it's pretty cool. It has a great sound design narrative elements, a little bit inspired by the conversations, some of the stuff we did for the sound design. So I, I love that movie. I want everybody to see it if they haven't already seen it. And then we've got a bunch of stuff coming up. So keep an eye out. Keep an eye out for the This Is Sound Design logo because there's a lot there's a lot on its way but yeah thank you so much and let me just say i love i love your the idea of this podcast oh, which you. is like focusing in on the business part of it because i think that's really important i think is sound design is really this independent kind of thing that's happening what you're doing is all about that and it's about having that conversation and you know trying to help kind of decalcify kind of break it free and kind of shake shake it loose so congrats man and I've, I've been listening and i'm i'm now i'm gonna be a subscriber I, I was already i've been listening to a lot of episodes my buddy jb 
the composer was on a little while back. We did a movie called United States together. So I'm like, oh, I've got friends on here. But I'm excited to see what you do with this because it's uh, it's super cool. Super cool. Oh, you're so sweet. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound pod. Sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 